Hello, I'm Jeff Levitt and welcome to the Sporting History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. Today I'm in conversation with David Woodhouse, who's the author of Who Only Cricket Know, a fascinating account of the MCC tour to the West Indies in the winter of 1953-54. The book is a quadruple award winner. I did originally say it was a triple award winner, but since I wrote this introduction, uh, it's picked up another award, so a quadruple award winner, including the prestigious Cricket Society and MCC Book of the Year. David, the subtitle of your book is Hutton's Men in the West Indies, 1953-54. But having read the book, I found that it was really about so much more than just that particular tour and the events that happened on the pitch, important as they were. So for first kind of discussion, can you put the tour into the context of what were the relative strengths of the teams on the cricket field as they went into the series, but also what were the expectations on either side of the Atlantic for what was going to happen during, during this series? Yes, Jeff, happy to do that. First, can I say how uh, pleased I am to be inviting you on. I'm a great fan of the podcast. Oh, good. That's and, always uh, nice to hear. It's also <laughs> nice to be doing it in the London Library, where I would think 70... Probably not for the people who wander in to read while we're doing it, but um, I think 75% of the book was researched and written here, so yeah, well, it's kind of my spiritual home, and the, the staff here are wonderful. Um, but to answer your question, um, yes, yeah, so, this tour that we're going to talk about was billed as the World Championship of Cricket. Mm. And the reason for that, I think, was both sides were extremely strong, but Hutton's men had just won the Ashes at home for the first time in 27 years. And the last time West Indies had played England, they thrashed them 3-1. So that's where this sort of billing came from. And I think it is worth, actually, if we've got time, just to sort of dwell a bit on those two yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I think we can immediately see why John Arlott said that the cricket of the period became so much more than a matter of batter and batting and bowling. And you know, I start the book actually with a pair of chapters on the symbolism of cricket, lovely cricket in 1950 and the Coronation Ashes in 1953, which of course are very famous. But um, mm. when West Indies win at Lords in 1950, you know, there's a sense of them reaching the promised land simply in cricketing terms. You know, they're, they're, it was 50 years since they'd begun touring there. They didn't get test status until uh, 1928. And their record before they won that game was played 10, lost 7, drawn 3 in England. Yeah. They, did, they did well in the West Indies. So purely on that level, it's a tremendous release of euphoria. I think Clive Lloyd was to call it VE Day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but also, I think 1950 is about the high watermark for feelings of possibly, arguably not true, for feelings of, the, of a sense of sort of West Indian federated nationality, but certainly in terms of optimism about going into independence and federation, which was the plan mm. for the, the sort of major islands and what were then called the British West Indies. The British were quite keen on this plan as well because. It, they felt it would probably le- cause them least, <laughs> least trouble, although they dragged their feet a lot. Um, but if you think about it, the first federated institution was the cricket team. Yeah. The second one was the University of the West End. In fact, they're the, about the only two federated institutions that survive across the what's now called the Anglophone Caribbean. So the cricket team had tremendous symbolism, I think, and that was made even more powerful by the, by the power of radio in the West mm. Indies. It was another unifying force across the West Indies. Um, not many people know, perhaps, that 
people in the Caribbean were receiving uninterrupted ball-by-ball commentary long before the British. 1939, they get full commentary through the day. Yeah. Whereas Test Match Special, what became Test Match Special, doesn't start in that uninterrupted sense till I think the mid-50s. Um, so you've got that sort of sense. And if you think of the Calypso, West Indies voices all blended. Yeah. Very much that sense. Um, and the Calypso also brings out the special symbolism of Rabbit and Valentine, you know, little pals of mine. So there's a sense of kinship between player and fan there, but also their little pals across national and racial divides. You know, Valentine is from Jamaica, he's the son or the descendant of an African slave. Mm. Ramadan is Indian and is the descendant of an is uh, Trinidadian and is a descendant of an indentured Indian. So they're little pals in that sense as well. So they really encapsulate the kind of the diversity of the West Indies. And yes. Of, yeah. I think there was a sense at this point of more of a sense of all we is one than blackwash yeah. at this time. That of course doesn't is not true later on. And there are still those sort of things underneath the surface. Now of course Windrush very much sharpens this feeling about Lord Beginner and Lord Kitchener, who claimed paternity rights over the Calypso, came to Britain on the Windrush. They were very obviously on the Windrush. Yeah. Um, and if you think of people like Sam Selwyn and George Lanning, you know, who are arguably the Ramadan Valentine of Caribbean literature, which which flowered very vibrantly, they actually came over together to England just before the Cricketers in 1950. And they also had this sense, they had a complicated sense, but a sense of this brave new world. Mm. Um, and also you've got budding politicians, you know, you've got uh, Michael Manley, Lloyd Barrow, Barbados, Forbes, Burnham, they're all studying at the London School of Economics. So Manley's going to Lords watching the series, has this sense of this precious, if fragile, unity. So, there are complications caused by Windrush in terms of um, migrants to Britain already understanding that um, they're going to be confronting more racism than they might have expected. Yeah. But at the same time, they're very proud of the team almost, um, you know, the empire striking back, as it were. Yeah. Does the experience of World War Two feed into that as well, do you think? Is that a kind of a, a cultural bond for West Indians? Well, again, that works two ways. Because I think that is true, and of course, many uh, British West Indians contributed to that um, effort. On the other hand, you know, that is very famous, uh, and as Geoffrey Hill and many other people have written about, you know, there's a famous case in which Constantine is, is is playing in a in a Dominions team to to sort of boost morale, and and then the N word is used against him. In a complicated situation, the N word is used against him by an Irish hotelier because American servicemen are staying in the Imperial Hotel. Yeah, in <laughs> Russell Square. But yeah. he only wins his five pounds damages for breach of contract, not for racial discrimination. Yeah. But there isn't a racial discrimination. Barbados brought in the Racial Discrimination Act before England, Britain. So I think the war is double-edged in that sense, that I think many British Caribbean people, who then of course came back to Britain after their war experiences, began to feel that their contribution, you know, was not being, I suppose, properly recognised and, and that this issue of once they had actually come to come back to the mother country, that's when 
Um, you know, the famous words of Lord Kitchener, you know, if, if you're not black, you if you're not white, you're considered black. You know, that everyone was sort of lumped together and, and I'm not putting this very well, but you know, that the issues that had been under, that had underlain the empire almost, you know, were now out in the open. Yeah. Now, now that now they're others. Well, this, yeah. yeah, this is a classic. Yeah. Object of study, isn't it? Um, many very good books at the time. Uh, I think Journey to an Illusion is a very good book, for example. Of course, there's, there's an enormous literature now on this. Um, probably more books about the Windrush than passengers on the ship, aren't there? But I mean, it's a very rich literature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did try and draw on that in, in Chapter 1. So 1950 for the West Indians is a real formative series in which they really announce that they've, they've gained equality on the cricket pitch in terms of ability and even superiority over over England. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. I mean they, they did lose in Australia in 51-52. Uh, we probably haven't got time to get into more <laughs> details of that. But We've got plenty of time. Th- th- they, were, they were quite unlucky, but that sort of gets elided in this narrative um, about the World Championship yeah. cricket, because last time they played England, they thrashed them, and England had beaten Australia in the interim. Yeah. So everyone just gets on with that idea that they're playing for the World Championship of cricket. Now, of course, 1953 has almost as much symbolism for the for the British as, as 1950 for the for the for the West Indians. Um, Coronation Ashes. Again, on this simple sporting level, you've got these. The narrative, of course, got built up because of Stanley Matthews Cup final, Gordon Richards Derby, conquest of Everest. So you get these repeated narratives of you know finally achieving. This this long, long sought for prize after serial disappointments. Yeah. So the the Ashes series, which was very, it was a very attritional series, but very exciting in the sense that it it was forever somersaulting between the two sides. Um, when it was nil nil, when they got to the able, but the point was every game had had its moments where it looked like one side would break through. I think Peter West called it a sort of grim tug of war. Mm. Australia finally lost their their grip at the oval. Um, but so you've got all of that um, euphoria caused by um, finally having some unrationed joy as an England supporter, as well as some unrationed tea for the first time <laughs> for a long time. Because you know they hadn't won the Ashes at home for twenty-seven years, yeah. and even um, the one win away from home has an asterisk against it because of body line. So you've got all of that, and of course it feeds also into new Elizabethanism. We probably haven't got time for that. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a, it's a very interesting. I mean, someone probably will. There have been some, many good things, I think, written about New Elizabethanism in passing. You know, I found very useful a book by Wendy Webster um, and Spry Rush, as well as, as sort mm. of written about that in a Caribbean context. But I think there is yet to be a really good book that concentrates on. Um, it's a very protean thing, New Elizabethanism. It obviously dialectically tries to combine the, the days of the heroic days of Drake and Raleigh with the, the fact jet engines and penicillin and all the rest of it. Yeah. It's a yeah. self-consciously dialectic thing. I mean, I think Arthur Bryant is supposed to have coined the phrase. Um, Arthur Rouse gave a speech in 1952 called A New Elizabethan Age. <laughs> Extremely interesting social document. I mean, it, he's actually hankering after a Victorian age. Yeah. <laughs> he actually wants... <laughs> There to be less social mobility and for, for sort of Britain to recover its its kind of 
I suppose it ultimately is a hierarchical system, if you like. But anyway, I'm digressing about New Elizabethan, which is a fascinating. So I'm really, I'm interested but, in it. So, <laughs> but, but within the narrative of New Elizabethanism, you know, people like obviously people like Edwidge and Compton, buccaneering, buccaneering batsmen, definitely fit into it. But I think even Len Hutton sort of symbolised for people these sort of feelings of relief and reclamation. Mm. Um, they were experiencing, you know, now that they were just coming out of post-war austerity. Um, so whether he liked it or not, he'd be carrying some of that sort of cargo to the West Indies. Sorry, sorry, no, I was going to say, and he sh- he's got that continuity from before the war as well. Absolutely. Actually, so it's kind yeah. of the, the young Absolutely. hope for the future mm. comes back after yes. the war. And as has Compton, of course. Yeah. But I think the thing about Hutton is, it's funny enough, C.L.R. James, really interesting little fact, he went off to uh, America after he'd seen Hutton score his 364, because mm. the previous tre- transcendental moment of English cricket was Hutton's 364, yeah, after yeah. years and years of Brandon. That's the last cricket match he saw before he went to America. And when McCarthyism, um, you know, sort of moved him back to Britain, as it were, he did watch the fourth test on the television when Hutton got a duck. But the first game he saw in the flesh was a game at the Oval. Mm. And he actually says, you know, this is sort of part of a sort of national consummation, you know, that cricket is even more a part of the national conversation than it than it used to be. Now, again, there's a lot of debate about that, but I do think immediately after the war, I mean, Peter Hennessy, I think, in, in his book on the nine, early 1950s, says it's, first of all, hard to, uh, hard to remember just how easy it was to get carried away in coronation year, but secondly, just what an important part of the, I think he uses the phrase, um, English sporting mentality, yeah. um, cricket was. Yeah. I think that's probably right. I've actually got a quote here from in the book. Um, there were two sociologists, um, Edward Shields and Michael Young. Michael Young, I think, the father of Toby, Toby Young's yes. father. Yeah. The, the, the chap who wrote the book about meritocracy. Yeah. In an interesting group, actually, which we'll probably come on to. You know, the, these, I think, a very interesting group of left-wing intellectuals. Um, if intellectuals is quite the right word, E.P. Thompson. Raymond Williams, uh, uh, Toynbee maybe, um, Richard Hoggart would be the other obvious one who I might come on to, but anyway I'm digressing too much, Um, anyway they raised a very sort of influential article, I think it was in the first edition of the Sociological Review, and they were talking of a great nationwide communion brought about through radio, television and press and in festivities, now they were actually talking about the coronation, but of course the power of television helped with cricket as well. Yeah. And they're just talking about how they feel as a sort of sense of family-like communion in Britain. And they say something like this kind of spirit has been manifested before, during the Blitz, the fuel crisis of 1947, the London smog of 1952, even during the Watson Bailey stand in the Lord's Test, Gorlock's final overs at the Oval. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, again, this is a matter of tremendous debate, isn't it, whether the people's war... You know, how cohesive, socially cohesive, how many much regional differences play their part. You know, Britain was as a society both in the war and just after it. And I think there are there's a whole gamut of views there. But I do think, um, you know, that, that there was this um, some of this um, communal sense. Um, which, of course, the coronation heightened in 53. Yeah. Now, of course, the question of Britain's future as an imperial power, I mean, your studies, um, you know, sort of 50 years before, that is, again, a very interesting 
moment. You know, um, what, what I think is really interesting about what you were saying about West Indies was, because I've written about the West Indies book in the 1900s, was that I think the, the way that I've looked at the West Indian team at that time was that they saw the West Indian team as a cultural bond and they pitched it to, to, yes. to the UK as almost like the, an imitation of South Africa saying, we can come together yes. as one. And of course there, there, are dangers unit. In, yeah. there are dangers in that, in that you play into, you know, a, a sort of radical nationalist would say you're possibly playing into the, what's the intellectual word, the sort of reinscription of colonial attitudes. Yeah. For example, Michael Manley in 1950 said that it was like people coming of age mm. so he's almost playing into this idea of you know uh, the British as masters or benevolent yeah. trustees and the and the in inverted commas natives learning yeah you know learning from the masters so there is a, I think some nationalist people were conscious of the dangers of that but yes I think that that is true the, the interesting thing the other way around is you know what is the English what function in terms of national identity of the English cricket team Mm. Um, playing, yeah. Um, in that, it's I think a bit easier when you're playing Australia. Despite body line, the smell of body line was still hanging around the place, and that was a problem for Hutton. But when you're playing, in um, to use the terminology of the day, colonies, mm. not dominions. Yeah, you know, yeah, is yeah. your role ambassadorial? Yeah. More ambassadorial. It doesn't really matter who wins as long as the gospel of cricket is is proselytized around. Um, you know, what is becoming the Commonwealth, or does it actually matter a lot that you beat all comers? Yeah. And the MCC can't quite make its mind up about that. Um, yeah, and I was, I mean, going back to Hutton, um, his, his role, um, not just in English cricket, but I think in English society is very important, isn't it? Yes. Um, maybe you can expand... On, yes, on I mean, him as an individual, but also as a symbol of mm, social change. Yes, I mean, again, how long have we, have we, <laughs> have we got? I mean, I've always been fascinated by Hutton. I mean, the story, just for people who, 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 you know, who, who might not know, know the, the detail. Is yeah, it? for the non-specialists. Um, it's not true to say England had never had a professional captain. Way back in time, when tours abroad were, were more sort of commercial affairs and there had been professional captains. But since MCC, the Maribyrn Cricket Club, took over the aegis of, of uh, international cricket, there'd never been a professional captain until 1952 when Len Hunter was appointed. And um, to be honest, MCC had run out of amateurs, really. <laughs> I mean, there's some interesting stories in the book about what they were looking for, for people to take on the job. But really, they came to the conclusion that perhaps Hutton, he was definitely the best batsman um, in England, and one of the best cricketing brains. Although he didn't captain his county, interestingly, for the same mm. amateur professional reasons. Norman Yardley was still captain of Yorkshire, but they sort of threw the threw gritted teeth. Slightly complicated thing actually, because it was a progressive home selection committee which had Yardley on it. It has Les, a Les Ames, who was the first professional ever to sit on it with tenure. It had um, Bob Wyatt, who was sympathetic, he was an amateur, but sympathetic to um, professionals. And it had Freddie Brown, who was very old-fashioned, but who had captained Hutton in Australia and I think appreciated his tactical acumen. So they made him captain for the home series against India. And I think MCC held their noses because they were so desperate to beat Australia, essentially. Mm. But of course... Having a, a professional captain of a tour is an entirely different matter. 
partly for these ambassadorial reasons we were talking about earlier. You know, would he make the right speeches at the, at the Navy Club and so on and so forth? And partly the sense of can, or can someone from the ranks keep his men under control? Mm. You know, there was still very much, I think, this sense of, you know, um, it needs someone of officer class to sort of run a long tour. In fact, in some ways, they were proved right yeah. <laughs> in their <laughs> concerns. Um, where the question is, you know, are those concerns the most valid ones, ones for, a, for a professional captain? And so I don't actually say this in the book because I, I couldn't prove it, but I'm, I'm 80% sure that they actually wanted David Shepard yeah. to captain this tour. And Shepard made himself unavailable because he was starting a, a course to become a, a member of the clergy. Um, and the correspondence between... I mean, Pellamorna doesn't even ask Hutton if he's available for the tour till July. And, you know, the early meetings of the committee, which are in the Lord's Archive, make an automatic assumption, you know, whether by habit or whether deliberately, that the, 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 the captain is going to be an amateur, get, yeah. get his own allowance on top of the amateur's... special allowance on top of the amateur's allowance. So I don't think they wanted Hutton to do it and only did it when they'd run out of people they thought of asking. Peter May was a bit too inexperienced, I think. And Trevor Bailey, who we'll come on to later, Yeah, uh, they had other issues with. He's a very complicated figure. He is. But yeah, maybe we'll talk Again, about Again, Yeah, yeah. I, I'm uh, always in danger of opening another parenthesis, but, <laughs> you know, Hutton I find a fascinating person. I think one can, Derek Burley, in his Social History of Cricket, I think, talks of his lonely pioneering journey through the class barrier. And I think there is a danger of romanticising that. Mm. Hutton's an extremely complicated person, a very taciturn, enigmatic person, but complicated, I think. And he's socially quite conservative. Um, he's only militant, really, when it comes to money, most of the time. His Moravianism, he's a, he's a Moravian who was sort of um, one of the first, I think they can claim to be the first Protestant sect, but they lived in an enclosed sort of community in Fulneck in in uh, near Pudsey yeah so he's got you know he's in these very interesting communities that give you lots of strengths in terms of self-reliance and thrift and toughness uh, and determination but also that comes with the the other side of the coin he's got that twice over first from Moravianism and second from being a Yorkshireman yeah and then thirdly from being a Yorkshire cricketer obviously in the age when Yorkshire cricket was was particularly tough yeah 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 and I think he told the story that the first time he was in the Yorkshire senior dressing room, no one talked to him except for one for um, someone asking him to go and find out the result of the two forty five at Thirsk. Um, it's a nice story. I actually did research the day in question. There was no racing at Thirsk on that day, but that's an aside. But so often, often those stories representative of of what happens yes, in indeed. dressing rooms, isn't you it? Know, Rather than Hutton couldn't understand people of the generation after him. As far as he was concerned, you know, there was a rhythm to apprenticeship and you had to use your powerful observation. And that's what people like Rhodes and Hurst had done before him. Yeah. I mean, one shouldn't caricature Yorkshire cricket too much. There was a whole cast of characters, very interesting group of people. But he couldn't understand people who didn't sort of basically shut up and watch when they were learning their cricket. Yeah. So that's why he had a few problems on this tour with some of the younger players. So he's a very complicated person. Um, he was actually, I think, also a Freemason, as, as many um, Yorkshire cricketers were. I think Sutcliffe was a 
trouble is it's very hard to research that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, well, but I, th- I think so. It's as secretive as the MCC, yeah. aren't they? I mean, <laughs> I mean, Yorkshire Cricket yeah. Club is a secret society anyway. Yeah. But but on top of that, I think Sutcliffe and Yardley were both Masons as well, and maybe even Hedley Verity. Anyway, that's an aside. So, and there are lots of things that happened to him in his career. You know, he injured his arm in the mm-hmm. war. He was battered by Lindwall and Miller at um, Don Bradman's behest. Bradman hadn't forgotten about the 364. So there's, hopefully my chapter on that in the book will give you more of a sense of that if you do read the book. But the one thing that can be said is that the most militant act of his life, in my opinion, was to refuse to captain England uh, without staying a professional. What they expected him to do when they sounded him out, I think Bob Wyatt was the person tasked with sounding him out, yeah. was do what Hammond had done yeah. and um, what Bill Edrich wanted to do and sort of find a sinecure somewhere. Some Yorkshire businessman would have would have definitely given him a, a sort of role that would have been, he'd been able to call himself an amateur. But he didn't do that. He said, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. If, if you want me to captain, I'll do this professional. Yeah. And I think there was a sense of professional pride and a degree of reasonable and class consciousness for that decision. And it was a very important decision. And, and thinking about the captaincy, obviously on the West Indian side, there's also a significant issue around captaincy in the post post war era, particularly, isn't there? There's this debate around yes. who should be a captain of yes. captain. Well, as you know, um, uh, there was still an unwritten rule that the captain had to be white. Yeah. Funny enough, they could just about couch it in terms of the captain being an amateur. Yeah. Because there was a similar amateur and professional. Uh, situation in the West Indies. Essentially, basically, anyone who played what was then known as colony cricket in the West Indies was an amateur. There was no paid professional cricket in the Caribbean itself. But yeah. Of course, if you were... Constantine was the first Headley following his footsteps. If you were a good enough player to go and play your trade in the Northern Leagues, you became professional. Yeah. And that then caused problems with the Board of Control back home. There were lots of arguments between people like Frank Worrell and the Board. But the unwritten rule is that the captain still had to be white. Um, now, as it happened, um, the, the incumbent, Jeff Stolmeyer, is another very interesting character. Um, I wrote a chapter on him as I wrote a chapter on Hutton because I thought they were both sort of important people. He's a sort of... You do get these people, don't they? He was both conservative and progressive at the same time. Mm. You know, he's, <laughs> he's capable of both kind of positions. And I think if Hutton provides a study of a man without privilege um, negotiating his way through an evolving English class system, Stolmar provides a study of a man conscious of his privilege negotiating his way through society where those traditional linkages between race and class were beginning to break. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So I think, it, I think it's trite to think of Frank Worrell as the Nelson Mandela of West Indian cricket. Um, but it may be equally tried to think of Stolmeyer as its F.W. de Klerk. Yeah. But, but he's another good example of how individual personality and historical forces intersect. I mean, that's why I found this material so interesting. And I think not all, if you, if you were a sort of cricketer in Port of Spain for one of the clubs lower down the hierarchy, I don't think you'd have a very good view of, of Stolmeyer. He was a planter from Mont-Valmont. His, co- his family, his branch of the family were cocoa planters in Mont-Valmont, where Brian Lara's from. Okay. So in some ways, he's a classic establishment figure. Mm. But in other ways, he was, I think, reasonably progressive. I think he did more good for 
West Indian cricket than bad on well, balance. I mean, that's that's what comes on to the next sort of topic I wanted to talk about, really, because um, obviously West Indies is a, is a series of colonies and islands, mm. and Trinidad traditionally is, is more progressive than some of the other islands, isn't it? And yes. That, that brings tensions, because often I think in the early days people from cricketers from Barbados would go to Trinidad because it was yes. easier to play for a better team over there That's right. than, than back home yes. in Barbados. But those tensions yes. continue, don't yes, they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a reasonably long line of Bayesian cricketers who feel they have to leave yeah. that island. I mean, Frank Borrell is, is probably one of the last in the line. Frank Borrell goes to first to Trinidad, but then settles in Jamaica because mm. he finds the atmosphere in, in Barbados too stuffy. I think that can sometimes be overplayed, actually, this, this, this sort of thing of Trinidad being tremendously cosmopolitan and permissive and, and Barbados not. I think it is a slightly more complicated thing. Yeah. Because the very fact these caricatures are there is, is bearing out what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would say is, is that, you know, insular rivalry is not unique to West Indies. No, I mean, you, you can have it between Yorkshire and Surrey exactly. in the 50s, I mean, can't you? My book has yeah. a lot of, on yeah. the North-South divide. The, yeah. the Hutton-Compton thing is an obvious thing, but there yeah. are other things. I mean, to be honest with you, I believe Yorkshire's real deadly enemy was not Lancashire, with whom they sort of shared the narcissism of small differences in Middlesex. Yeah. I mean, they almost stopped playing Middlesex. It got so, so rough. Um, and you think of Australia, you know, North, New South Wales, Victoria, Catholic, Protestant. And you think about India. You know, you've had Ram and yeah, people yeah. like that on um, Prashant talking about those kind of things. Yeah. You think about South Africa. You're, you know, our friend Rich. Yeah. Yeah. It's very well about that. So I mean. I think it's a very British thing to look at the colonies and just assume that we don't have our own sort of divisions. Exactly. We, yeah, we see division in them, whereas if we were more reflective, we mm. would see that, that, that there are the same mm. divisions. And maybe you don't see it in cricket nationally so much, but certainly in rugby, for example, yeah. you get that, that happening. Yeah, I mean, I think South Africa is just about the nearest analogy in the sense you've got, uh, you know, a black... I never quite know the right terms to use, you know, because you know there's been so much contamination of these terms. Yeah. For example, if one uses the term non-white, it has so much baggage. Yeah, I agree. But you have such a good um, glossary at the beginning. Glossary, mm. or um, you set out and how you're going to use terms because when you're using sources from the period. To be honest, you have to yes, replicate it's, the language it's tricky, if you don't agree with it. Yeah. But what I was going to say was. Yeah. In, in South Africa, you have a black majority, you have a, mi a um, you know, significant mixed-race population, you have Indian migrants who've been sort of indentured in, mm. and you have a, and a white elite minority. Which is also split. Yes, <laughs> yeah. uh, not quite so much in the West Indies, but there is a sort of split between expats and, and settlers. Mm. I think the difference is, of course, that in West Indies, and to be fair, people like Pelham Warner, often caricature, and I'll probably go on to caricature him later in the context of the relationship with Hutton, but um, West Indies went down a multiracial path. You know, yeah. its first tour in 1900 included black players, partly yeah. at the insistence of the Warner Brothers, whereas South Africa didn't. But, you know, the, the milieu, the, the, the racial milieu, if you like, is, is I think, most similar yeah. between um, South Africa and, and the Caribbean in terms of the, the different groups that are with some differences, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, but to come back to the insular rivalry, you know, I've just spent five minutes saying um, we shouldn't be too hard on them. There's no doubt at all. That, you know, I mean, West Indies cricket, after all, is literally insular, isn't it? 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's very hard for us who weren't raised in the region and who remember the great era of fire in Babylon you know, that Simon Lister writes about where they, they do have this great sense of unity yeah. to realise just how many, um, you know, just what a pernicious force parochialism could be. Yeah, and, and there's elements of class in that as well, isn't there? So yes. there's, there's class tensions within the England team, but I think there's class tensions within the West Indian team as well, isn't there? Yes. Which comes from, obviously, having a plantocracy yes. captain. But I mean, we'll probably come back to that as we sort of t- tell a bit more of the story, but I think, I think race and class are often in parallel, but not always. Yeah. You know. And I mean, if you, if you think about it as well, uh, you know, the... the um, even from a historiographical point of view, you see that is kind of um, tensions. You know, for, uh, although it tries its best not to be beyond the boundaries of Trinidadian book. Yeah, okay? yeah. You know, Michael Manley's great history is a Jamaican book. Yeah. You know, after all, he picks Dujon and Hendricks as his wicketkeepers, best ever wicketkeepers, without sort of mentioning anyone from any of the other islands. And um, if you think of Beckles and Coe, you know, they're obviously Bajans. Yeah. Tim Hector puts an Antiguan slant on things. You know, Frank Burble Singh, Clem Seacher, and a proud Guyanese. So I think that's, that's present. I mean, in the book, I, I sort of compared the selection process, which was very controversial. Everything about the tour was controversial in the Caribbean in terms of who got what, you know, which, who got which tests. Jamaica got two tests, which made Trinidad very angry, and the selection process, etc. And at the time, I sort of compared it to the selection of the British Lions on the grounds of the big four colonies, that is Barbados, British Guyana, as it was then, Jamaica and Trinidad, still dominated the, the cricket, partly because of the, the sugar interest behind them. If you were from a small island like Antigua, you couldn't get a look in. But I think probably a better analogy for thinking about the way West Indies cricket can become very complicated is if you thought about the continent of Europe, mm. just selecting one football team, yeah. You know, imagine how that would get. Yeah, 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 it's a good uh, analogy. I mean, yeah. so nowadays, I think, with 15 different different countries to select from, as it were, I mean, they're not all independent countries, but, but many of them are. Yeah. And so now to go specifically into what happened during the tour, um, I mean, still talking politi- politically, though, I mean, it's a very dramatic period of West Indian history, isn't it? And especially... Uh, in British Guyana at yeah. that time. So can you tell us a little bit about what was happening while the cricketers were there? Yeah, I mean, that's the most obvious one. I mean, yeah. to be honest, things were going on in every um, every um, colony, as they were called then. I mean, I think in Beyond the Boundary, James said, you know, this is the moment where the islands were in the full tide. Yeah, they're fully politically from, conscious. From colonialism to nationalism. Yeah. So, you know, in Jamaica, you've got some labour unrest. In fact... The governor, the British governor, um, Hugh Foote, who's the brother of Michael Foote, thought about introducing emergency powers while the cricketers were there. Mm. In Trinidad, Uriah Butler, he was behind some of the you know, very violent disturbances in 1937, had just gone back to Trinidad. Eric Williams is just beginning to form. He's giving the lectures that cause him to form the, the PNM, literally while the MCC are there. Yeah. Even in Barbados, you know, there's a... There's a the beginnings of a split in the in the in the William political party. It's a funny story, actually. They had limited powers given to them, you know, at this very time. 
and Bramley Adams was invested as the first prime minister, the first home-growing prime minister of Barbados. The Jamaicans were very angry that he was allowed to call himself prime minister. Bustamante had to call himself chief minister. Yeah. That, that's typical of the sort of thing. Again. <laughs> but uh, the investiture was put forward to a very early hour in the morning so that everyone could then go and see MCC play Barbados. It wouldn't happen in many other places in the world. But as you say, British Guiana was the most obvious sort of tinderbox or whatever the right, that's a cliche, whatever the right term is, in that um, literally, I mean, you'd never not put cricketers into this sort of situation, would you now? Right. Literally a couple of months before they were due to go, um, Winston Churchill's government imposed sort of quasi-state of emergency in British Ghana, removed the democratic elected leaders who'd been in power 133 days, put some of them under house arrest, and shipped in a battalion of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders. The Welsh Fusiliers were there for a while, and then the Argyle and the Argyles came in. So while one can exaggerate it slightly, to call it a full-blown state of emergency might be overdoing it, you know, there was almost martial law in the island, not quite, uh, but it was a very difficult situation. And what characterised British Guiana as well, as was the case with Trinidad, was that um, because of indenture after emancipation, there was a large um, community of Indian heritage. In fact, they outnumbered the community of African heritage, so you've got those issues going on as well. Now, what really f- there were two things that exercised the British... The first was that the PPP, the local party, was generally, genuinely at this time multiracial. Mm. Chetty Chagan was the leader of the, the Indian community, Forbes Burden the leader of the African community. And of course, very often in these colonial situations, the colonial power plays on the differences amongst the communities. Certainly on the surface, there was a united front there. So I think the British were very surprised when the PPP won the election. Mm. They thought that they, they wouldn't do that. I think the PPP were surprised as well. <laughs> and um, that's point number one. And point number two yeah. is, I think, Jagan in particular, Burnham to an extent, but Jagan particularly, didn't do a particularly good job, which some of the other left-wing politicians of the region did, in trying to convince the British that he wasn't a communist. Yeah. So the British intervention sort of sort of prefigures sewers and even obviously it also prefigures um, was it about the same time as the coup against Mossadegh in, in Iran yeah there's no US intervention yes. in South America yeah, yeah absolutely Guatemala yeah. yeah I mean the US had the CIA had agents operating in, in, in Ghana at this time so you know for those two reasons basically um, the plug was pulled as it were and so the, the cricketers are put directly into that situation. Yeah. Now, one, you know, I spoke. I was lucky enough to speak to a few Guyanese people. It depends who you talk to. You know, Constantine has a passage in his in his very important book. It's an uneven book, but it's an important book called Colour Bar, which he wrote mm-hmm. in 1954, about no Guyanese people standing up for the national anthem. And indeed, some of the English players and journalists saw that, you know, when they were there and couldn't quite understand it. Of course, I suppose it's the sort of equivalent of taking the knee. Yeah. <clears throat> but on the other hand, many other, the cricketers themselves actually, and um, I mean, they saw people patrolled in the streets and the odd sort of flare going up for military exercises. They didn't really see much trouble. 
and there's even a I think it seems to me that the, the British were actually sort of trying to create an atmosphere of saying there was going to be more trouble than there actually was likely to be but anyway yeah. that's an aside that's, that's the, the background to um, the, the third test and in the third test there was a riot yeah. it was the first riot at a test match I think in modern times because when you read wisdom there is virtually no uh, reference to the context within which this game took place. Yeah. Now, whether the riot was political or not, I spend a chapter of the book talking about it. It's very difficult to say. It's a very complex situation. In the in the what was then called the colony game, <coughs> the umpires do appear to have been being competent. To be fair, and hadn't had them replaced. There was an alleged incident of racial abuse mm. from either Truman or Johnny Wardle to one of the umpires. But the umpires were changed from two African umpires to an umpire of Indian heritage, who happened to also be the groundsman, and um, an umpire of Chinese heritage. So one potential interpretation is that the African community, and there were more Africans in Georgetown, were upset by that. I don't think you can be sure about that, though. There's other potential explanations there's obviously some anti-British feeling, but no one threw bottles at the English players. I mean, the CLR James theory that it's actually people expressing their annoyance with local collaborators, for want of a better word, mm. I think is a reasonable explanation. You know, the, 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 the club, the, the, the Georgetown Cricket Club at Border was a sort of elite club. Yeah, it felt to me, reading that chapter, that... Um People's, people's opinion of why the riot happened tells you more about their position on the political spectrum or their yes. position within that sport versus politics debate than it, yes. than it actually tells you about what really happened there. Uh, so that the riot almost becomes uh, a, a subject, a place of debate, really, and um, nobody's even clear exactly what happened during the riot. Don't yes, you? I think that's yeah. right. I think there are some facts... Some material facts are open to question. Um, and I think you're right that people wanted to read into it what they wanted to read into it. So most um, sort of, how can I put it, establishment people blamed it on drinking or gambling because yeah. it happened when someone was run out, um, going for a hundredth run, going for a hundredth partnership where half the ground had had a bet on it and so on and so forth. But of course, on the other hand, nationalist people felt that was very insulting to sort of draw on these stereotypes of, of, of sort of um, um, local people. So I don't think we'll ever know, but it is, it is a fascinating incident. It, it, it's sort of fun trying to find out yeah. or trying to have some idea of it. Um, so British Guyana would be the most obvious place where the political background clearly must be playing its part. Most Guyanese I spoke to didn't think the PPP were involved in it. I mean, they would have probably been involved in it 20 years later when um, Forbes Burnham's methods were, were sort of less democratic. Um, but, you know, it's there. So on the same day or the day after the riot, the main stand at the Queen's Park over in Trinidad was burned down. Yeah. Now, of course, again, was it an arson attack? Was it an accident? Why was it done? We can't, again, quite get to the bottom of it. But I think it... It does give you a sense of how we might come on to where the English cricketers didn't help themselves and they, yeah. their, their attitude was not good. 
but I think you can see how they develop what Godfrey Evans called a siege mentality. Yeah, There's so much yeah. going on, and yeah. they hadn't really been. They had been given a briefing by Walter Monckton, the Minister for Labour, before um, they went out. But there were two problems with that. One, all of Monckton's um, foreign affairs experience was east of Suez, and secondly, he was busy dealing with a rail strike, so he didn't really appear to give his speech much attention. And I think many of the cricketers complained. They just hadn't been given any proper briefing in terms of, of because the particular circumstances. M- many of them are young men who, if they've been out of the country, it's maybe to, be, to do national service. Or, yes, and of um, course national service yeah. creates its own set of attitudes, doesn't it? Yeah. I think I quote Keith Thomas, the, the great historian in the book, who did his national service in Jamaica just before the cricketers came out, but I think he played cricket against Al Valentine mm. while he was on national service. And while he said he didn't, I think he was quite pleased to be posted to Jamaica, not to Kenya or to Malaya yeah, at the, the 50s, time. Yeah. But he said, you know, looking back at the letters I wrote to my mother, I'm, I'm absolutely embarrassed about the, you know, the racial attitudes and, and sort of um, parochial attitudes that I expressed. So yeah. you know, if an Oxford don, you know, somebody who became a, yeah, you know, uh, a historian we all admire admits to those attitudes, I think it's safe to assume some of the cricketers, yeah, you know, found the experience pretty disorientating yeah and before we move on to the cricket one one other thing uh, one incident I wanted to talk about was the the confrontation between Hunt yes. and Buster Menti maybe just to carry on the, the kind of the, yeah. the turbulence of the politics I mean there were so many incidents I mean I think in the in the index to the book I put a category from major incidents and there were 17 of them yeah. you know, all sorts of things were happening and we won't have time to, to go through all of them no because we today. want people to read the book as well uh, to find out about <laughs> the other ones so. kind of you to, to say <laughs> so but I mean Tony Locke got noble for throwing and there was a bust up in a lift in Barbados but the bust of incident is quite interesting in that, in that Hutton had just scored just compiled over about 11 hours uh, a double century mm. which um, you know had an important influence on the on the on the series, you know, he was walking into tea, and someone stuck his hand out. There are various, again, yet again, there are various reports. If we have time, you might talk about the way the two, um, the two press corps have very different. Yeah, attitudes. yeah, that's good. But, but um, <laughs> you know, he's various reports either to you know, not really acknowledged him, or actually almost physically brushed him aside on the way to the. Pavilion, yeah, and you know, within moments of him getting to the pavilion, um, you know that the sanctum of the pavilion was unceremoniously breached. Trevor Bailey recalled opening the door to a political lackey, and Charles Palmer, the player manager, remembered this chap being a large man, and he was presumably able to confirm this because the bloke lifted him off his lapels and uh, off off the floor by his lapels. And uh, Godfrey Evans noticed the sort of bulging outlines of a gun under the intruder's arm you know so it was this you know actually reasonably frightening incident i would yeah. say for the you know, for for the um players and this entourage was the entourage of the chief minister alexander bustamante because um the man hutton had ignored was bustamante yeah and of course from the jamaican point of view the failure to shake hands was an insult mm. from hutton's point of view it was a sort of crowning you know it put the sort of seal on, on what he thought had been rudeness to him. And yeah. of course, funny enough, some of the home journalists actually were most enthusiastic about saying, look what happens when you send a professional captain. Yeah. So... He's sort of failing to 
keep up the etiquette. Yes. I kind of when I when I was reading that section, I was kind of feeling quite sympathetic to Hutton. It's like even when I've yes. triumphed by scoring ten runs when I go off the pitch, I never yes. really want to. You know, mm. you're you're in, still in a different mm. space, aren't you? When, yes. When you've been. Um, we'll come back to Hutton just just in a in a in a second. I mean, I should have said, of course, in the riot, he mm. he, he refused to go off the pitch, yeah. which was considered to be a very sort of heroic action. I think, to be honest with you, Hutton was such a focused cricketer. He didn't want to go off because he didn't want to lose time yeah. in the match because England were chasing a victory and time was running out. Um, but in this incident, he felt very hard done by. There was lots of other complications trying to tidy it up, which we probably don't um, have time for. But from Bustamante's point of view, I mean, it's, it's very hard to say what his motivations were. Hubbard thought and was told um, that it was all a bit of a put-up job. Mm. You know, and this would tally with the considered view of colonial civil servants. Um, who said that Bustamante would usually choose the most flamboyant and exhibitionist course of action to advance his personal standing. But I spoke to um, a Jamaican writer called Lance Nita, whose home village, in fact, hosted Sunday afternoon cricket matches where Buster would come and attend sometime. Yeah. He just feels Buster was a genuine cricket fan and may have just been spontaneously congratulating her. It's very hard to say. I mean, I, I did put forward a theory that there's an interesting photograph at the time of the coronation where the Queen is photographed with all her Dominion minister, uh, first ministers and leaving a few technical aside as to whether Malta was a, the technical status of Malta at the time. Buster Manti, he, he looks on anyway first because he's the only one in a grey suit. All the others are in yeah, black suits yeah. or national dress. Yeah. So he stands out anyway. He's looking very pleased with himself to get on the shot. And he's the only minister of the colony to get on that shot yeah you know there was still this distinction between the the, the kith and kin um to an extent obviously india pakistan and ceylon were fully independent but so if he managed to get himself onto that shot i just have this feeling that he actually wanted a photo opportunity you know of himself as the the leader of an emerging nation yeah bustamante a very complicated figure of course almost a almost a gangster in certain ways but on the other in in other ways you know, sort of buccaneering man of the people. It's, it's difficult to sort of categorise them. But maybe he wanted that sort of symbolic shot of a handshake between the Jamaican chief minister and the leader of a what, after all, is still an imperial institution, the Maribyrn Cricket Club. Yeah. And maybe just didn't understand that. I mean, that's, uh, I'm glad that you brought that up, actually, the photograph, I mean, because one of the features of the book is some excellent photographs in there, some great um, shots, including the one of Bustamante with with the Queen, but also Hutton, I think, going up the steps, um, exiting after his double century. And yeah. so that really vividly brings to life the, 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 yes. the narrative and the analysis that you have in the it, book. It would have been wonderful, obviously, to have had a video, video <laughs> footage of Hutton walking past it, but then yeah. we'd know what happened. But, uh, we were lucky to sort of find some um, good photographs over time. Yeah. So um, I'm glad you enjoyed them. Yeah, I mean, sort so, so, and quite a lot of politics there, but mm. to, to go back to the cricket, I mean, cricket is incredibly tight and competitive as well, isn't it? And I don't know if you want to give away the result. No, I'm happy to do that. Cricket fans will know. The first, the first uh, but it really is, is a real seesaw <laughs> series, isn't the, it? The first podcast I did, Jeff, for, <laughs> the book's been out for about a year, I, I didn't give away the score in a very precious way. And the, the host, quite rightly, said when I came off, well, you know, what a prima donna, you know, everyone, <laughs> just, just get on and turn the score. So basically, he went 2 0 down, and they looked absolutely dead and buried. And um, 
they got it back to two all. The, the fourth test was played on a, a jeep matting in Trinidad, mm. so it was very, very difficult to get a result there. And, and there were lots of incidents in that game about the umpiring, because of course any wicket really mattered. Yeah. So when England had a few bad decisions, and the West Indies had a bad decision, in fairness, you know, all hell was breaking loose, but it was a very little chance of result. But England won in Guyana, Hutton scored a big century there, and you know, dealt with the riot and managed to, to get the result. And then in Jamaica, because of his 205, because of Trevor Bailey's 7 for 34, England um, squared the series. And that was unprecedented away from home to come back from Tunnel Down. In fact, obviously, Bradman came back from Tunnel Down to win 3 2 against Gabby Allen in Australia in the 1930s. But I think, I might be wrong about this, but I think that's almost still, you know, a unique achievement for an MCC team abroad anyway. Um, And so I suppose I made the decision that I really wanted the book. It's interesting, you know, I'm from an academic background, so I kind of set out thinking I'd write a reasonably academic book about sort of post-colonial themes with the cricket and class themes in England with the cricket sort of more in the background, but I actually thought the, cr- the cricket deserves to have a, you know, yeah. a proper record of it, <coughs> so, you know, using the contemporary press reports. So I don't think anyone has, has done that before. So the middle part of the book is, is sort of cricket-focused, although I hope it does then branch out Oh, definitely. Too. I think it's one of the best books I've read that integrates um, sort of social political history with just giving an account yeah. of kind of nail-biting matches as well. So yeah, that, that I really, very kind of say yeah. so. I mean, as we all know, it's very... Di- I mean, one of the reasons it took me so long to write is, is, yeah. is I wanted it to be, to be a very balanced book between England and the Caribbean. Mm. I didn't want it to be, you know, let's look yeah. at it all through the eyes of... Uh, Our boys over there. Yeah, exactly. Sort of yeah. But I also want it to be balanced between the sort of background we've been talking about in the cricket. So, so to get that right is very tricky. Yeah. Um, and you might expand on this, but um, at the end of the book, you pick out Trevor Bailey and Fred Truman as having had their careers affected detrimentally by events on the tour. But as you said, within the England team, there are all kinds of tensions going on. Um, yes. Tensions between Hutton and white settlers or whites. Yes, um, we haven't really mentioned that yeah, just yet. So yes. maybe I mean, maybe we could just take them all in. Turn. Yeah. You see, the England cricketers are. Co- there's so much going on in this yeah. tour. It's, it's often hard to sort of set the yeah. scene in the in the in the right way so that listeners can kind of. Let's think about Hutton as a as a representative of the mother country for yes. white West Indians yes. and white so, expats. You know that there were three problems with Hutton, and there were problems both the MCC back home. I mean, the the three key men on the. West Indies Selection Committee were all captains of middle, ex-captains of middle right. and I would say Pelham Warner, Gabby Allen and Walter Robbins yeah. and they were all establishment figures Warner in particular would have been still obsessed by the sort of civilising mission and of course was greatly scarred by body line mm. so they wanted an ambassador type that's the first problem the second problem is they were all obsessed by brighter cricket. Mm. You know, I think Constantine once said, brighter cricket about which we hear so much and see so little. But because the county championship had become rather... Ironically, at this point in time, the MCC is more concerned about protecting the county championship than it is about test cricket. It's a funny thing in some ways. So there was very much a campaign against negative cricket, partly because there was some perception that football mm. was becoming a more popular sport, although I think cricket was still set as the summer game of England. And of course Hutton, 
was because he was raised in a Yorkshire school, a very uncompromising um, player. So when he gets to the West Indies, he adopts a non-fraternisation policy because that's what the Australians did to him, which of yeah. course goes down like a lead balloon among nationalist people. Yeah. You know, with, with you know, basically not talking to to Walcott and Worrell and so on, and instructing his players to sort of be as almost as aggressive as possible. But then, actually, in his cricket, and that that extends incidentally to sort of very hostile fast bowling by Truman and Statham. Yeah. George Headley, the great um, West Indian hero, made his last appearance. Very touching, actually. He was brought back by public subscription, but he was probably too old to play, really, and hadn't had no compunction in ordering Statham and Truman to sort of bombard him with short pitch balls. Uh, Headley had been a fantastic hooker in his prime, but in one of the first warm up games, I think, in Truman's words, um, George went down and the crowd went up. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all that. Yeah. But then he's also very negative in terms of slow over rates and very, very slow batting. He, he took the view that to beat Rabbitin and Valentine, you had to grind them down. So England were responsible for the slowest days test cricket um, of all time, 128 runs and 114 overs. I think there have been fewer runs in a full day's play, but I think the run rate yeah. that day is the slowest ever. So, you know, he's not been a good ambassador off the pitch. He's not playing bicycle cricket on the pitch. That was anathema to MCC and also to the white settler class, whether yeah. they were expatriate civil servants or whether they were, you know, people, descendants of slave owners, essentially. No one shouldn't, um, you know, again, as so often make too many generalisations, I think many of them would have passed the Tebbit test. Yeah, well, I think there are, there's analogies between West Indies and South Africa yes. in terms of those kinds of attitudes. Yes. And there's always exceptions, of course. Of course. So, so one has to be a bit careful about this. But I think the general impression uh, the English players got, that they actually became more sick and tired of their interactions, if it were possible. They were, they were thoroughly miserable anyway. But they became more sick and tired of their interactions with the you know, white cocktail parties than with nationalists, actually. And, of course, they, they kept being told two things. The first thing was, you've got to beat these guys. Yeah. You know, we can't really have an England team not beating the natives. And, of course, not only were they not beating them early in the tour, but they were actually playing really cricket that was embarrassingly sort of not cricket, if you like. Yeah. And, of course, added to that, Hutton wasn't from the right class. You yeah. know, I mean... He, he, Someone made remarks about his accent early in the tour. The player manager, Charles Palmer, was not quite sort of top stuff. You know, he was from a re- he, he'd been educated at um, uh, Bromsgrove, was it Bromsgrove or Hales Erin Grammar School and Birmingham University? Yeah. So, you know, they hadn't been sent the right type. So the players were continually told, you've got to beat these fellows. And number two, it's a disgrace you've sent out a professional captain. So that's a sort of vortex. Uh, Hutton said he was in an impossible vortex. He was sort of a, attacked by nationalist people uh, for, for sort of being too aggressive or too, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, insensitive. Yeah. He complained about the hotel and all this sort of thing. And of course, at a time when um, the the sort of charges for a hotel would have represented the monthly wage of most Jamaicans, that didn't yeah. go down, all that sort of thing. But on the other hand, the um, the elite, the white elite on each island you know, didn't thought he was letting the side down as well. Yeah. So they had a lot to put up with. So he has all of those problems with yes. exterior um, yeah. th- things to deal with, but then within the team as well. He yes. has some very strong 
personality that team. So he has MCC incidentally yeah. telegramming him saying you've got to speed up, you've got to do this, that, and the other. And then of course, yes, he's got. So maybe uh, we could go into Truman. Yeah, <laughs> I mean Hutton f- had many strengths. Yeah, I'm a tremendous admirer of him, and I mean the achievements to. First of all, to draw this series, and then to win in Australia the next series, are inc- I think some of the f- greatest achievements of any England captain against two very good sides. Um, but man management, I think, was probably not his greatest strength. Yeah. Although he did learn some lessons from the West Indian experience in Australia the next winter in sort of managing people like Tyson and Cowdery. But Truman, who he had sort of half looked after at Yorkshire. I don't think, again, as I, as I said earlier on, I don't think Len, you know, he expected young professionals to, to come to him yeah. and ask questions, not to be sort of mentored or inquiries made about their mental health. Um, but he did have a reasonably good relationship with Truman. They, they both liked snooker. They used to play snooker together. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when we get out to the West Indies, Truman's used to calling him Len, and now it's Sir... Uh, and, you know, on the one hand, Len's encouraging to bowl as fast as possible and sort of be really um, ultra-competitive. I think John Arlott described Truman as feeling his oats on this tour as a young man. You know. But on the other hand, of course, he's got to behave himself. And so Truman keeps getting himself into trouble. There's a story he once asked to be passed condiments uh, by a dignitary of Indian heritage and said, passed a salt younger dear. Now, I don't think that's actually true, but... He kept getting himself into trouble on and off the pitch. And um, his punishment for that essentially was to be effectively banned. He had his good conduct bonus removed. He was the only mm. player for that to happen to. And he was effectively banned from touring for five years. Yeah, so it's a really big effect. If you're a professional cricketer as well, that's like Absolutely. that's denying Tr- your earnings. Truman never forgave yeah. anybody for that. I think he sort of carried the can for... They needed some heads to roll, essentially. We'll come on to Bailey in a second. Yeah. I mean, they wanted Hutton's head to roll. Well, yeah. And I have a lot of sympathy for Truman. I mean, he said himself that apart from playing cricket, he'd never been further than Cleethorpes before in his life. So he was thrown into this situation where, because he was quite a direct person and a congenital swearer, obviously, yeah. um, problems were always going to occur. And there was this generational issue in that, you know, he was put in a... Room with Tony Locke, the other twenty, the other young tourists. They were both twenty three. They were going to all these cocktail parties, where there weren't many young people to talk to. You know, because the the white elite tended to send their own children to university yeah. in England, and not many expats brought their teenage children with them. So there's all kinds of factors. But Truman had already sort of queered his pitch with Lords because he'd been seriously told off for swearing. Um, there was a dossier on his swearing. It's actually quite. Listeners might enjoy it. I found this in the Lord's archives. This is written by um, the retiring secretary at Lord's Colonel Colonel Rate Kerr. Um, he's writing to the Yorkshire Committee, and he says it was mentioned to me first by Admiral Norris, who was chairman of the Combined Services Cricket Association at a luncheon party attended by the First Lord of the Admiralty, several Sea Lords and members of the Air Council and Army Council. 
Admiral Norris said that he had never thought he would live to have a complaint lodged by one of the Indian touring team during the combined services match at Chatham to the effect that the Indian players felt perfectly disgusted with Truman's language. <laughs> and you see, there's two problems for Colonel Ray Kerr there. In fact, Colonel Ray Kerr is reported as once saying, I can't stand educated Indians. Yeah. You know, the, it's the colonial subalterns who are now yeah. being, you know, being the gentleman, as it were. It's Truman who's making... And, of course, the other embarrassing thing for Colonel Ray Kerr is the very highest ranks of the Navy who were, who were an Air Force who were upset by it. Yeah. So Truman had already sort of had his card marked. And I think when the reports came back, Gubby Allen, who was a very influential figure at Lord's also, um, didn't like him and was very much in favour of good conduct premises being used for disciplinary purposes. Mm. What's also interesting is the actual minute of Truman being disciplined. Um, the MCC Secretariat... Ronnie Aird and um, Billy Griffith already had a bureaucratic talent for converting the sort of liveliest of meetings to the deadest of prose, but they've actually pasted over whatever was originally written. Yeah, and then ba Bailey, I find a really interesting figure because I remember him from when I was young, being a commentator and being thinking of him as this really mm. crusty kind of reactionary person when I listened yes. to TMS, and then when I was a teenager, I read his book about the tour that England play next in Australia and win, um, I found a completely different voice in that book to the yes. voice that I was hearing on the radio. I mean, I um, think... And he's a very mm, interesting figure yes. as an amateur Again. about having a professional, hard-nosed attitude mm. to the game. I think he's a man full of interesting paradoxes again. Yeah. I think probably towards the end of his press career, he almost played up, I think, to the sort of... Sort of like the type thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's also a bit of sort of... Uh, bit of jingle, isn't there, in, his, in, the, in the way he used to sort of deliver his verdict. But I found him a very interesting chap, and I'm sure he wasn't everybody's cup of tea, and he has some paradoxical aspects to his own character. So, you know, for example, I think socially, he found Hutton a bit difficult, and as long as he could avoid boring people at cocktail parties, was quite up for a good time himself. Yeah. So, you know, when he writes his list of ideal tour companions... Dennis Compton and Godfrey Evans are in there, and Len isn't. But on the pitch, he gave unstinted support to Hutton. He rallied the troops. He was very unselfish, I think, in his own contributions. And, you know, he had a good tour. Mm. And he came back, and um, he was unwise enough to write an article about the tour before 12 months had elapsed. And in those days, that was not allowed without MCC's permission. The technicality was he was an amateur, so he hadn't actually signed the professional contract... <laughs> that stipulated that um, that sort of thing. And uh, I wrote a chapter in the book, I found it fascinating, you know, about all the machinations of that controversy, yeah. which we probably haven't got time to go into now. Suffice it to say that I think there was an element of hypocrisy in MCCs. First of all, it was very trivial. There's always hypocrisy in MCC. In the, you know, it's in those days, certainly. Yeah. Pella Warner was yeah. allowed to write for newspapers while selecting teams. And, well, he was yeah. a professional journalist when he was still pretending to be an amateur cricketer in et South Africa, wasn't he? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think Bailey had every right to feel aggrieved. On the other hand, you know, he'd done various things that had got MCCs. I think MCC were ready to bring him down a peg. Mm. And I think the impression given by the minute, various minutes is that it was an old boys' network ready to sort of... They didn't think Bailey was... They thought Bailey was not quite, yeah. you know, in, in all sorts of ways. You know, Dulwich wasn't quite... 
he wasn't quite an amateur. He had a faint smell of Douglas Jardine about him, you know, because he bowled negative leg theory and it wasn't body line. He wasn't quick enough for body line, but he was prepared to use any tactics to win. Essex was not a fashionable county. That's another thing. And, of course, Essex reminded um, Warner of Johnny Douglas, with whom he'd had a long feud. There were all kinds of things. And, again, not least, um, it appears that Gabby Allen and Trevor had an intense mutual dislike. So I think Allen's hand is also there. But eventually they stripped him of the vice-captaincy and um, Peter May became vice-captain of Australia. And I think... A little tra- cricketing tragedy in its way, because I think Bailey would definitely otherwise have been the next captain of England after her. I mean, obviously completely different cricketers, but I think there's an analogy between Bailey and Shane Warne to an extent, where yes. he's, he's just not, you know, he's not uh, amenable enough to the establishment that's been placed that. into the... Yeah. I can see what... yeah. They winning cricket matches was what they were all about mm. by almost any means. I think Bailey's means would almost always have been negative rather than positive. Yeah. Uh, in, so in that sense, I'm not sure the Warner idea is quite right. Also, I think Bailey was perfectly sort of respectable. In um, yeah, he's not a larrikin. Yeah, yeah, but he is, you know, aggressive in certain ways. Yeah. Um, that I think. He's not a gentleman yeah. in, 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 the, in the way that MCC would expect. Yeah. I think that would definitely be fair to say. You know, he, he had a lot of commercial interests. You know, he dabbled in journalism even when he was a player, all this sort of thing. Yeah. I think there were many reasons that, that he didn't, so his face didn't fit at Lord's. Yeah. And of course, the man they really wanted to get was Huck. Yeah. <laughs> and um, again, we probably haven't got time for all the details, but I, I hope I did find some sort of reasonably new material about... Um, you know, the the fact that he very nearly lost the vote of the selection committee, it seems, probably saved by Harry Altham. You know, you even wrote to Swan to, you know, because he, he did think he was going to get sacked. And I, I yeah. think there was a, a group in MCC who definitely wanted to see his head roll yeah. for, for the, for the conduct then, of that West Indies tour. Yeah, and then we sort of talked about what happened to England in Australia, but then the implications of the series for the West Indies were profound, weren't they? This was yeah. a real kind of watershed moment in I suppose Indian so cricket, wasn't it? I mean I I think well, it was the, it takes a little time I think it was a Barbadian historian Woodville Marshall who came up with the term Worrell Sabres Revolution yeah um, for the first great period of West Indies dominance in test cricket so you know we all understand the symbolism of Worrell but I think Sabres has almost as much symbolism mm. because he's the first uh, captain um, not to go through the elite school system yeah yeah you know, yeah. Warren Walcott did go through that system. Yeah. But the funny thing is, as you've just alluded to, and there's a chapter in the book, the penultimate chapter is all about this. It took a long time for that revolution to actually happen. Yeah. I think there was quite a bit of pent up energy from 53, 54. I think in the Caribbean itself, number one, people didn't really want to remember a series where they were 2 0 up and. It feels like you've and, lost. And, yeah. yeah. And also the riot, of course. If you were a nationalist politician, you wanted to avoid any sort of taint of communism. Mm. I mean, the memory of Haiti was still there in the English um, mentality. And of course, we've got Cuba coming up yeah. very soon. So there's that issue as well. But, you know, the three W's had to play under three white captains after Stolmeyer. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's hard to believe, really, isn't it? Um, and, of course, there's the famous 
moment when Wall takes over as captain after that. But um, the other irony, I suppose, is that even at the moment Wall does finally you know, get to the end of that journey, which of course is a very parallel journey to the one Hutton's made. Mm. He's made it, Wall's made it through the, the colour bar, Hutton's made it through the class barrier. Um, at the very moment he sort of triumphs as West Indies captain, that is the very moment the political project of federation collapses. Mm. So the cricket team is a unified, vibrant force at exactly the moment federation falls apart. So that's the sort of final irony, if you like, of this, these journeys we've been on. Yeah. And so, going into kind of our historiographical or methodological uh, section, uh, we're, we're, we're a podcast for historians, I suppose. Um, I mean, how, how easy was it for you to access the archives in the Caribbean and the UK? As a historian, mm. I can see that this is, uh, this is a complex piece of work to put together yes. if you want to give equal weight to both sides, as, as you admirably yes. do. Um, the Lord's Archive is a treasure trove. Mm. You know, um, you have the actual school books there, the minute books that I've alluded to, although you have to sort of read the code of the minutes. Mm. Minutes are taken for committee meetings, and MCC had a lot of committee meetings. So that, that was the heart of some, a lot of my research. I'd like to thank um, Neil Robinson and um, Robert Curfee of uh, the MCC all the help they gave me so that was tremendous now on the West Indies side the Caribbean side unfortunately the minutes of the West Indies Cricket Board of Control have never been made available right in fact Woodville Marshall who I just talked about is one of the historians to complain about that now one of the reasons given is that there was a fire in their offices at right, some point <laughs> yes yeah. I mean there had of course been a fire at Lord's as yeah. we know which um, caused uh, Arthur Haygarth a lot of work in uh, in earlier times um Funny enough, since I've written the book, um, I've seen um, some of the... Vanessa Batch, who's writing a biography of Walcott, the Trinidadian writer, has managed to track down someone who kept a shoebox with copies of some of the minutes, and they are fascinating. And they do actually corroborate some of the guesses that I made about the later 1950s. But I didn't have access to board minutes, and I didn't... Um, I planned a field trip to the Caribbean, which COVID unfortunately scuppered, just as I was sort of getting towards the end of the book. The good news for me was, I was obviously able to, we'll come on to the people I spoke yeah, to, yeah. but the good news for me is that the British Library has a pretty good um, archive of Caribbean yeah. uh, newspapers and material. So it has at least one of the newspapers um, on all the islands sometimes more than one so that that was invaluable for the cricket number one but also to get a feel of the of the of the sort of time there's nothing like reading newspapers but here at the london library i mean i just love reading the times almost from cover to cover for, yeah. for the whole year 1953 54 because you just get such a feel of what's going on yeah what do people so feel is important at that time yeah and somehow reading the physical newspapers a more pleasant experience than jumping around, although you can search it more easily so that was good. And for example, the, the British Library holds um, the nation, the PM. This is actually more relevant to the 1960s, but the, the PNM weekly newspaper that CLR James edited you know, during the Alexander Muscogee campaign. But it also holds public opinion, which is the PMP newspaper in Jamaica. And I found that particularly useful because the, the official newspapers, although they're very good newspapers, you know, I mean, the Gleaner and the, the um, 
in, in Jamaica, Port of Spain Gazette, Trinidad Guardian. They were decent newspapers in the 1950s. I mean, I enjoyed reading them, and they had some good people writing for them, but they, they were established, ultimately establishment newspapers. Yeah. You would, you know, take a royalist line, take a, uh, an MCC line, I suppose, in many ways. Um, so public opinion is a different beast. Again, a very well-edited uh, journal, uh, for a time edited by Michael Manley, who had a weekly column, meant to be about politics, half the time was about cricket. Um, an irascible um, cricket correspondent called Ken James, who said that the English journalists uh, were the most biased bunch of typewriter punches since Dr. Goebbels. <laughs> Bit um, harsh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't really talked about that and probably yeah. won't have time to talk about it, but there was a division within the British. Yeah, you've got these feedback loops, though, you know, yeah. where the the British, most of the British press, E.W. Swanson accepted, I think, most of the British press would complain about the umpiring and the crowd and everything. And then that would get cabled back and reprinted in, in a West Indian newspaper. And then the English would report back the West Indians getting angry about what had been cabled back. It would go round and round and round and round. Um, so that was... You know, I, I was lucky that there was a really good newspaper record. Um, and of course, I tried to um, supplement that with, with anything I could find of a secular yeah. nature. And, but then you, you also have these um, oral history that you use as well. So you're interviewing people. You interviewed Dabbett and Weeks. Yes. So it must have on, been very shortly before he passed away. On the, on the telephone, I would say it was about... Yeah. I'd say it was about a year before he passed away. Extraordinary yeah. man. I mean, his secretary told me that you know, he, he still went for, drove himself for a swim in the morning and cooked his own lunch and so on. And he was absolutely lucid, actually very careful not to be unkind to anybody. And that yeah. was something he was very careful not to be. Um, I, I did write a small piece about him myself, and I, I knew very little about him mm. apart from he was an immense cricketer, but I just found his biography phenomenal, really. Yes. <laughs> out, of, out of those three Ws, he was mm. the one who... Had the furthest to go to get to, went, to get to where he got to. Absolutely, I think yeah. people sometimes appreciate that the the three Ws. Are, I think Everton used uh, joked that it made business sense for them to become the three Ws. <laughs> um, at the time, they were usually known as the W formation. Actually, in the nineteen yeah. fifties, the three Ws is a phrase that tends to be used a bit later, and they were absolutely without doubt became firm friends, and you know committed to progress in mm. West Indian cricket and all of them in their different ways made extraordinary contributions obviously Worrell by taking on the burden of the captaincy Weeks by his coaching of players in the Barbados Cricket League and elsewhere and Walcott actually took up the job of Booker's coach in British Guyana mm. again of course if you're a radical nationalist you might see all this re-inscribing colonial attitudes but yeah. in terms of the progress of, of, of Caribbean cricket and the setting the path for the fire in Babylon era, the three W's make a massive contribution. So it was a great privilege to speak to him. Mm. I spoke to Bruce Parodu, um, who sadly now recently passed away, he'd emigrated to New Zealand, so he, he's a white Guyanese, but very young yeah. to get his point of view. He was very, he was a good friend of Ramadan, but very pro-Stolmar compared to John Goddard, the sort of, Barbadian white, who was a sort of alternative captain. We might come onto that right at the end when we talk about race and class again. Yeah. Uh, but one Christian view I think was 
the last surviving English player, Alan Moss. Mm. He was a lovely man, first of all. And I didn't want to tire him out too much, you know, but he gave me two hours of his time. And he certainly gave me that sense of being on tour. And I yeah. know that's something you've researched yeah. in an earlier period. And, you know, I think it's hard for us to realise, you know, how difficult it was. I mean, I know it's a great privilege to tour as it is today, but yeah. to be cooped up with people when you're a very disparate social group yeah. with, with other things going on externally for four months. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, Alan did also tell me about um, some of the ways in which they had a lot of fun. But they're cooped up, travelling around, mostly, as I say, interacting with, with white planter class types. Yeah. Um, you know, that di- and then, of course, the dynamic, which we haven't really had time to go into massive detail on all the different characters in the tour, all the different cliques, which Hutton, while he did a lot of things very well, possibly didn't manage as well as he could have done. Yeah. So that sense of all of that... I was saying to somebody the other day, I find it hard enough to spend a week in Suffolk with my cricket team, so I can imagine yes. going on a six-month trip with yes. them or, or something, I mean, little playing things, very high-stakes games. Little things turn into sort of yeah. big crises, don't they? So, um, I mean, one of the main dynamics was Compton and Evans, basically. Yeah. Uh, good job Bill Idris wasn't there, I would have thought, um, you know, going out in the town a lot, and some of the younger players feeling that they were getting the blame for that kind of thing. Yeah. When in fact it was the, the, the senior pros who were the worst offenders. Um, so there's all that dynamic. So, and I was also lucky to speak to people like um, Robin Wishart, who was the son of the secretary of the Guyanese Board of Control. He was actually there at the riot. So that, that was me. So I was, I was lucky to speak to a lot of people. And some of the historians um, who I approached, some didn't have time sort of to help me, but were nonetheless very encouraging. But... Frank Burble Singh gave me a lot of his time in Guyana, and um, I was very touched that Bridget Brereton, who I think is one of the sort of doyens of Caribbean history, she took a lot of time to go through my chapter on Stolmeyer and mm. put me right on a few things. So that was a great privilege to have her yeah. input. So, you know, I hope I've covered off a, a reasonable amount, but you always yeah. worry. Well, that, yeah, when you finish a piece of work. Almost the next day, you're guaranteed to see something where you can... Uh, of course. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's the nature of the... We're simply never going to recover, you know... Well, it's impossible to recover what is the truth, first of all. Yeah. And secondly, it's impossible to recover it, never mind how much material you've got. But I'm, I'm reasonably comfortable that I've sort of gone on this everywhere I could go. I mean, one of the things that you've done that, might, I don't know how you're going to develop it, but you, you've set up a website... Um, with, because you, because you're writing for a, a public or not not just an academic. Although the book is academically rigorous, you're you're writing for the general reader as well. So I get the impression that you didn't want to have the book yes. too footnote heavy. I think so, that's right. Yeah. So you put a lot of that kind of archival mm. work online, haven't you? Yes. I mean, what was your thinking behind that? Yes, you have it right essentially in that in that, as I've explained. Uh, I've got a lot of people to thank in terms of how the book evolved. Stephen Chalk at, at Fernfield Books, and I met a chap called Nigel Noellen by accident at Lords. He not only read it once but twice in terms of getting the right, helping me get the right narrative voice. Um, but as I said, you know, I originally conceived it as a reasonably academic book. You know, something like I don't know, I mean, Liberation Cricket, you know, edited by Beckles is actually mm. a. a an edition of essays, isn't it? But you know, that kind of 
book with footnotes and yeah. apparatus. And my background is academic. But then I thought, actually, the more it becomes a book for the general reader, I don't want to clutter the thing Yeah, yeah. Um, with, with footnotes. Um, I can't quite remember that Noel Coward joke about um, seeing a footnote at the bottom of the page is a bit, a bit like someone interrupting you in the bedroom or something. <laughs> so, um, I haven't told it as well as, as Noel Coward. But, wow. Um, so there was that part. Yeah. There was also simply the fact I just had far too much material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a lot easier then for me to, um, you know, put that on the website. But I also had this conception, to be honest, I've been so busy, I haven't really done enough of that yet, of it being a sort of humble, in its humble way, a kind of open source resource for future researchers, you know, be it on cricket or on Caribbean and that there's some things they could find there in terms of some, some themes that I've just started to develop but only just sort of summarised. I find that admirable because often people are quite um, guarded about about their sources and I think it's such a, for me it's the right way to be, is to be generous yeah, I mean, with, with the material that you've got absolutely. and say this is a beginning point or, yes. or, uh, or a um, point on the way. I mean for me I was just educated that you know you, you always have to source your material. Mm and um, preferably quote it correctly yeah. all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> well, coming on to that, maybe CLA, CLR James might be an interesting way to finish, because I think um, as great a thinker as he was, he was not necessarily the most accurate historian, sure. um, but obviously a founding figure in terms of yes. writing about West Indian cricket, but also writing about the relationship between cricket and society. I mean, how... What kind of influence yeah. do you have on you? I mean, you, you've named the book after mm. a quote from him. How long do we have left? As long as you want. Seriously, then. We'll get chucked out of here, won't we, at some point? Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, oh, yes, so as, yeah. as I say, I could probably talk on these kind of subjects for, for far longer than your listeners would, would like. But <laughs> we could split it into two. I mean, let's try and. Um, I mean, clearly, the. The title of my book is a homage to James. And I think one original thing in my book, actually, I, it's only a tentative suggestion, is that that you know, famous chiastic aphorism that everybody knows, mm. and, and I think is perhaps almost quoted too much. I think most people are familiar, certainly most people listening to this podcast will be familiar with the fact that that is an allusion to Kipling's English mm. flag. But one thing I did um, discover, and it's very difficult to prove this because of the composition history of Beyond a Boundary, which is it's, it's very interesting in itself. You know, you wrote quite a bit of the book earlier, so it's quite possible this didn't happen. But what is interesting is that the precise way he quotes the Kipling, which is a slight misquotation, is exactly the way Enoch Powell quoted the English flag yeah. in a very nativist speech, which was in 1961, St George's Day 1961. Yeah. Uh. You know, he uses the Kipling to say, actually, the people you know most about England are the English. Yeah. Powell obviously changed his position. You know, didn't he almost consider committing suicide when India became independent? Yeah. So from being a real empire man. Yeah. Some of it, remember, you know, he, 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 he stood up for, um, people often forget this, nobody is completely one-dimensional. He stood up for Kenyan um What's the right word? You know, I would call them freedom fighters. He probably yeah. wouldn't, but you know, he stood oh, no, up. No. For them. He stood yeah. up for them uh, against their mistreatment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, anyway, I'm digressing ridiculously, but the the, the point is, it's interesting. I think that 
James quotes it in exactly the way Powell quotes it two years later. Yeah. As if almost what do they know of cricket, who any cricket know, is partly a response to Powell saying that the English know themselves as well as anybody and we don't need any help from anybody else, thank you. Yeah. yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and of course James lurks, lurks is the wrong word, you know, who um, is a presiding presence in the book. I think he himself, James, doesn't he? He says that Shannonism, I'll, I'll explain what Shannonism is in a minute, is the foundation of Beyond the Boundary. Mm. And I'd say it's probably the foundation of my book in the end. You know, that austere, um, what's the right word for it? That sort of proud, austere comradeship you mm. get in teams, in sports teams that really want to stick it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, for want of a better word, the establishment. Yeah. And of course, the examples in cricket that the example that James uses in his book, for those of you who haven't read Beyond a Boundary, is Shannon, which is the team of the Constantines, first LeBron Constantine, then his son Leary. And they played the game, you know, in a really fear. Uh, they didn't break the rules, but they played it very hard and they were hard on each other. So if you dropped a catch, you were considered to be a fifth columnist and so on and so forth. And so I respond well to Shannon, but I think that within reason of course one of the messages of my book is that very easily shamanism can tip over into um, um, sort of uh, patriotism of an unhealthy nature yeah um, but when it's controlled I think it is an expression of uh, without trying to get too pretentious or Jamesian you know expression of social pride so you know you'd identify that with some of the great australian teams and certainly of course with some of the great yorkshire teams yeah i think i am definitely drawing a parallel and we might come on to this in a minute you know it is it is certainly far far too simplistic to make an exact parallel but between the journey of hutton dealing with class prejudice and whatever other way you want to sort of describe that those difficulties and the way Caribbean cricketers emerge in the same way. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I think James is a, a great influence. And I think Beyond the Boundary, like all great books, I think it's a it's an uneven book. To be pretentious for a moment, it actually reminds me a little bit of Coleridge's biographical literary in the way it's all sort of it's a better book than that, actually. <laughs> but but um, in a way, it's all sort of cobbled together, but yeah. somehow it works. Sometimes autobiography, sometimes history, all sometimes political tracts. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think the stuff on double conscious, his double consciousness yeah. is one of the, you know, the greatest um, descriptions of that. Funny enough, it reminds me a lot of um, Richard Hoggart wouldn't use the expression double consciousness. You know, Richard Hutton and uses of literacy. I'm sure James will have read that book, and I, I think it may have influenced him perhaps subconsciously. You know, Richard Hoggart's account of being a grammar school, a scholarship yeah. boy, and also having that double consciousness between his working class community in Yorkshire. Of course, there's a lot of the interesting thing about both James and Hoggart is this question of how much of it is regional consciousness and how much of it is class consciousness. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, James is a, a paid up Trotskyite at the time of Beyond the Boundary, whereas I shouldn't think Richard Hoggart is. <laughs> um, but, you know, so that's very valuable to me. And I do think the kind of which I'm sure you'll be familiar with, that, that sort of extraordinarily dialectical interpretation of W.G. Grace, mm. which, funny enough, he published first in The Nation during the campaign to 
bring Warren in as captain. I think he was trying to show E.W. Swanton that he understood English cricket as well. Yeah. Yeah. While it's very, it's self-consciously impressionistic, I think it is actually an extremely interesting um, into, you know, first of all, he is about the first, I think he is almost true, although he was influenced by Neville Carter, so I don't think Carter's particularly happy about the way James does plagiarise a lot, actually, without um, acknowledging sources. And as you say, can be rather hard and fast with, with some facts to make points. But didn't he say, you know, that you know, um, that's the higher truth that fiction is? Yeah. Well, I think that's the way we should look at it. So that's all on the plus side, yeah. you know. But on the other side, I do think he sort of holds a disproportionate stranglehold on... on stranglehold is the wrong word. But in some of the sort of cultural study we're involved in, yeah, Anglophone, particularly Anglophone Caribbean cultural study, I think sometimes he's almost treated like a sacred text. Yeah. You know, and I think... Do you remember, you know, the way Croce wrote that essay about what is dead in Hegel and what is alive in Hegel? Yeah. And I think... Um, Someone did that for Marx as well. Uh, John Elster. Yeah. I think he's Norwegian, is he John Elster? But he, he copied that, sort of what is dead and what is alive in, in Marx. I think we should do the same sort of thing with James. I think he sometimes treats you like some sacred text yeah. that you should never um, sort of diverge from or, or sort of pay often to all the time. Often by people I don't think, who I don't think have actually read him. <laughs> you know? yes. I mean, Beyond the Boundaries is, is, yeah. is, a, is a rewarding but reasonably difficult book. Yeah. You know, I think The Black Jacobins is a... Obviously, again, an extremely important book, although I'm sure historiographically, you know, modern historians may have some issues with it. But again, it, 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 it puts, um, I don't know how James would quite put it, you know, the, the black masses or the, you know, as a historical agent. Yeah. But I think that, again, it's revolutionary in that, in that way. And some of his other work, I, I think, is very interesting. Um, but you know, I, I suppose what would be interesting to talk to you about with your, with your research interests is, you know, I often think, and I'm sure many other people <laughs> do, of I'm not saying this is original to me, but just it's it's instructive, isn't it, sometimes to think of the comparisons with Fanon, mm. who James must surely be aware of, actually yeah. rarely mentions. I mean, he mentions Césaire, yeah, and, and of course new Césaire, and, and and often quotes from Césaire. It's, it's rare, isn't it, for him to, to actually acknowledge Fanon very often, but surely there is, in the double consciousness, yeah. which goes back to Dubois, and it, it, it doesn't originate in either of them, yeah. but surely they're aware of each other. Similar generation, context. similar educational background, similar yeah. journey through... Yeah. I think it's yeah. interesting to think about them without sort of saying one is better than the other or whatever, but... Cricket, funny enough, or sport, is that sort of little thing that differentiates. And if you think about it, there's three things, I think. I mean, Fanon is a rich, complex writer. Um, so I'm not trying to reduce it to these three things. But I think there's three things that he would say where James would diverge or not quite be able to sign up to it. So that one of the things Fanon said, I think... Um, you know, as, in, as Algeria moves to independence, we must not cultivate the exceptional, mm. be it in sport. He, he actually explicitly said we should not cultivate the exceptional in sport or in literature. Or in, you know, of course, this is a very austere view of fraternity, which I, I kind of can get, but is it realistic? But anyway, you know, he doesn't want world historical figures. Yeah. Whereas, of course, because of James's, I uh, suppose, Hegelian... Um, 
self-education. Cricketers are world historical figures, aren't they? Yeah. So Fanon, Fanon is against that. Uh, that's one thing. And second, of course, Fanon says that for there to be true decolonization, all colonial, you know, the, the influence of the foreign power has to be extruded. Yeah. And we have to get rid of everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, Beyond the Boundary isn't saying that, is it? Of course, it, it recognises that it is actually, you know, a colonial burden, that, 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 you know, injustice has been committed. Yeah. But for James, you know, whether it's cricket or whether it's the sugar industry or whether it's the English language, these are all things that have, modern things that have been introduced into, into the... Anglophone Caribbean situation and can never be extruded. So, I mean, again, the, these different emphases are interesting. The fact that um, I don't know whether Fanon had any sport in his back, of course, Camus famously yeah. did, but, but yeah, I, no, not come across anything. But you know, he's, the fact of being interested in cricket does, I think, explain some of these yeah. gaps. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the the Fanon position on violence and violence being purgative and, and justifiable. Of course, that in Anglophone Caribbean terms, we get in Walter Rodney. You know, it's that famous Walter Rodney quote I've actually just written down so I don't misquote it that violence aimed at the recovery of human dignity and equality cannot be judged by the same yardstick as violence aimed at the maintenance of discrimination and oppression. Very famous quote, I think, comes from Fanon, if you like. And of course, this debate is older than older than post-colonial theory. I mean, we're, we're Russian Revolution debate, French Revolution debate, and I think about it all the time. Really, you know, this this the the issue is, isn't it? Put in abstract terms, probably not as elegantly as a proper political scientist would put it, is that it, to take the three qualities of the uh, French Revolution, you know, liberty and equality are, are extremely difficult to square, impossible to square yeah. almost. You know, to, to have complete social justice means that you can't possibly have um, liberty at the same time. Um, so that those tensions are always so difficult to manage. You know, when is violence justifiable? That's what politics is, though, isn't it? Of course. It's about course. finding... Of course. And I suppose, you know, for, for the left, Fraternity does some work in the middle, mm. and of course for the right. You know. I mean, I, I'm my background is in the study of romantic literature, so my two important writers are Byron and Hazlitt. You know, and so obviously I often think about it in terms of Edmund Burke's political theory and and Thomas Paine's political theory or Goldman's political theory. But those debates go on even, you know, well before the period we're talking about. But they're they're, they're unanswerable, aren't they? You know, James's attitude to violence, I think he absolutely recognises the point that I think most historians would recognise that, you know, the, the cruelties of property and privilege, I think James sometimes uses that phrase, you know, that state, states and oppressors sometimes seem to get away with their violence more than... Yeah. <laughs> somehow it's legitimatised somehow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. I mean, didn't, didn't, didn't Fanon say they, they talk of man everywhere, they yeah. talk of man all the time and murder men everywhere, yeah. that sort of thing. Anyway, I've, I've, I've probably gone far too um, wide about it. But, you know, no, it's, it's fascinating. Um, 
And then there's a the whole issue. I have actually made one more note, which I should use. I'm not sure that there are many podcasts that have referenced Fred Truman and Franz Fanon in the same, <laughs> in the same well, discussion. It just occurred <laughs> to talk about Fanon a bit because yeah. I think when sports historians of an English, of an Anglophone background, I mean, I'm I, incidentally, I'm not, you'll know more about Fanon than me with your interest in French. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm not. Um, claiming at all to be an expert on that. I'm just saying, you know, I think people who come to cricket history or, or and related Caribbean history through the lens of James mm. just don't think that there might be some the alternative sort of um, emphases knocking around. I mean, if you, I suppose Caribbean cricket history, you know, has two main schools, doesn't it? It has the, the school that sees cricket as an arena of resistance. Mm. And reparation. I suppose Hillary, Professors Hilary Beckles and, and Tim Hector would be the most obvious exemplars of that school. And I think there is so much right and good in that um, in that school. And then there's the other school, isn't there, of, of sort of cricket more as a sort of an assimilative force or a reproductive force. Um, and you think of people like Stoddart and Sanderford. Mm. Um, Orlando Patterson to an extent, Tim Burton. Tim Burton's book, Afro Creole, I think is a very interesting book. And also Clem Seatron, of mm. course, you know, uh, uh, Muscular Learning, I think is yeah. a very important book. Yeah. Sweetening Bits of Sugar was a very big influence on me writing this book. So I suppose James seeks some kind of dialectic from that to say that, you know, the, the, the English code, in inverted commas, civilising code on the one hand and the sort of natural... I don't want to lapse into cliche. Natural realities of West Indian life. Somehow you can you can synthesise that into um, you know a, a, an identity, a cricketing identity to be proud of, and a more wider post-colonial. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes that dialectic can can just about work. And I think sometimes you know you have to sort of the economical with the economical with the truth is the wrong word. There is some the, the argument can't totally hold together all the time, and you're you're sort of dealing with those with those. Well, he has contradictions sources. within himself. I think CLR James that he's he's fighting against his tro- his inner Trotskyist. He's fighting against yes. his former kind of elite school exactly. upbringing, and, and that's exactly. what and makes it interesting. A, a yeah. radical nationalist, I think, would and there have been some very good essays on him. I mean, there's a CLR James industry, isn't there? Yeah. you know, would say that he's almost reinscribing. Yeah, the colonial mentality and not being prepared to to just tear totally it down t- exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that would be the critique yeah. of him on 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 yeah. on one side. Yeah. Um, I think we're gonna have to wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> Partly because I have to go to dinner at six. No, sorry, so. I, I, I've, I've witted on far too long. You no, can, it's been amazing. Feel free to um, edit this as you see fit. I but, will. Um, um, the trouble with this tour, I, I've, I've really enjoyed talking about it with a number of people, and the trouble with this tour is there's so much in it. Yeah. Of course, then you you, you get on to thinking about the sort of... Well, actually, this is the first time I've had the opportunity to sort of start thinking in slightly more abstract terms about some of the theory. Well, that's what makes um, it such a, a rewarding book to mm-hmm. read. And um, the CLR James is one cricket book that I've read more than once, and I think yours is one of the few other ones that I look forward to reading again. <laughs> Often when you get to the end, when I get to the end of cricket books, it's more because I have to review them, and it's like job done. 
Um, but this certainly, um, your book has certainly, uh, all of the praise that it's earned is entirely justified. So thank you very much for talking to me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you.